So being a puppeteer was my way, and drawing was my way of gaining control in a world that felt completely out of control. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Growing up with his grandmother in Rhode Island, Kevin Lima doesn't remember a time when he didn't draw. That passion for creativity led to puppetry and eventually CalArts. A successful career at Disney followed, working on Disney Renaissance classics such as The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin, before transitioning into directing his own projects, including a trio of cult favorites, a Goofy movie, Tarzan, and the live-action animation hybrid hit, Enchanted. In our conversation with Kevin, he discusses his career trajectory, his sources of inspiration, his passion for storytelling, and the vital skill of knowing when a story just isn't working. Here's our conversation with writer, director, and storyteller, Kevin Lima. We talked a little bit about this before, but you grew up in Rhode Island. I did. I the did. Portuguese grandparents, which is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I knew my grandmother really well, my vova, and um, but I never knew my vuvu. I, I, he died when my dad was young. Yeah. So, and my vova was probably the biggest artistic influence in my life. Oh, well, I was going to ask about that because, I mean, I, I wasn't sure if art was something that ran in the family. Well, my grandmother was a performer. She used to perform in the Portuguese social clubs. And um, she was a singer and a dancer. And she was also a seamstress. And like many people, at the, especially the Portuguese community, they all went into the textile businesses. So uh, lots of industry back then. So, yeah, she was she was very artistic, but she wasn't like a painter or, a, you know, she's she more like on the, the acting side of it and made costumes and stuff like that. So when did you start to sketch or draw or be interested in art? I don't remember a time I didn't, to be quite honest with you. I always drew. And I don't know if that came from just being with my my vovo and she just sort of put paper in front of me and we drew together. There's not a time I don't remember drawing. Very early with her, I made puppets. I was a puppeteer as a as a teenager. Well, I started when I was, you know, in my in my single digits. But um but I became a professional puppeteer at a certain point later on and that was all because of her because we made puppets together and I did puppet shows you know, for my family and stuff like that. Did you think creatively, like creative creativity and being like a creator of things was going to be your career? I didn't think of it as a career when I was little, little. Although my mother says we went and saw The Jungle Book in 1967. Now you probably know. I'm going to tell you I was five. So you, now you know how old I am. After the movie, I, I don't remember saying this, but she, but she recalls it. She said, I pointed at the screen and said, I'm going to make that when I grow up. And like every parent, you go, yeah, sure. You know, it's, you know, next week you're going to want to be a fireman. The week after that, you're going to, you know. But it became sort of an obsession for me. I'm very, very focused on, on animation and creating worlds. The same thing with puppets, right? Puppets is all about having control over the entire picture, right? Over the entire event. I think a lot of that came from, in fact, I just wrote a spec script, an autobiographical script about being a little kid dealing with uh, dealing with family trauma through uh, creativity right so being a puppeteer was my way and drawing was my way of gaining control in a world that felt completely out of control Cal arts is kind of a long way from Rhode Island oh yeah so oh yeah I joined a, a puppetry troop troop in Rhode Island the puppet workshop and I was a pretty my, my little bit of history here my dad left um, when I was 12. And I didn't see him again for 25 years. And so I was raised by a mom. And the reason I found out much later is that he was a heroin addict. And my mom then spiraled into alcoholism. So all that control I was talking about, I think really came from, you know, that world, the, the, the turmoil of that world. So when I was 15, I could get a job through the welfare department. 
And I knew the people at the puppet workshop because I'd seen them perform and they invited me backstage. And I said, hey, if you apply for a kid, I'll apply to be a puppeteer and we'll make a marriage. So I actually made that very first marriage happen in my life. And it's kind of a theme that I go back to all the time is making your future, right, is by asking for what you want. Um, and so I got a job there. So I was a puppeteer all the way through college. I was, you know, I was that kid in school. I was the kid, the, the artist in school, right? Got made fun of a lot. But I was that kid. And my, my high school art teacher, luckily, was also um, a cartoonist. So he did cartoon illustration. And he said, you need to go to CalArts. And I was like, that's far away. I'm not, you know, I can't do that. And uh, so I, I went to Emerson College for a year in Boston to for theater. And about halfway through, I said, oh, I just can't do this. I, I'm just not that kind of person. I'm not an actor. I, this world is really, really difficult and um, a lot of competition. So um, I applied to CalArts. So when you applied to CalArts, I mean, cause we'll, we'll get there, but I mean, in the end, you still ended up working in an environment where it's very competitive. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But, but, but I think it was easier for me, right? Because I drew all my life. So that came, kind of came naturally. I found I'm that kind of person that if I have to work too hard at something, I tend to kind of give it up easily. But I could draw. And, I, and that, although I'm sure it took many, many years for me to figure out how to, you know, do it correct, you know, as, as it does, you know, the training of drawing is as important. But it came naturally every step of the way sort of like unfolded easily. Piano, I wanted to play the piano at one point. I, I did it for about two months and said, this is way too hard. I'm not doing this. So, yeah, so I ended up at CalArts with every other kid from their high school who was like the superstar of, of their class. I think it's really interesting that you end up at CalArts, you know, this kid from Rhode Island who loves to draw. It's, it's not like it's an easy program to get into. So, you know, you've already made that step. But you're also somebody that, you know, had been doing this for a long time. And you already had a bit of experience working in a related industry. What did you learn at CalArts that kind of like shaped the artist that you became? Huh. What did I learn? The, you, know, you know, the biggest thing I took away from CalArts is a community, to be quite honest with you. You have a lot of like-minded people. We all taught each other because I'll tell you, at the time when I, I started in 81, 1981, and there were fewer people going into animation then. It wasn't as competitive as it is now, I think. Now I think the class, um, our class was probably 26 people, and I think now it's like 125 or something crazy like that every year. But it's really, I mean, CalArts is really character-focused, personality-focused. Um, sure, you learn all the draftsmanship and all of that that goes into it, but it was really about creating characters, and we all, as a class, helped each other. And that's really what I learned is how to how to be there for your, you know, for, for, for your friends and colleagues and help nurture each other through the process. I was reading, and I thought this was really funny because consider you ended up with a big chunk of your career at Disney. Yeah. They didn't want you when you applied the first time? They didn't. Well, there are some circumstances, right? So it wasn't so much just me. It was everybody. They had just finished The Black Cauldron, mm -hmm. which bombed, mm -hmm. bombed hugely. And they were thinking about not having an animation department anymore. So they didn't hire anyone my year, right? So they only hired a couple the year before, but they hired zero my year. So I didn't take it too personally. We knew something else was going on, but I did, you know, luckily there were other opportunities. So we all went off and found our individual paths that ultimately brought us all back to Disney again. <laughs> well, I read somewhere that you ended up in Taiwan. I did. I did. The first professional job I did was this short called Sport Goofy. And I don't, I don't really know if it's ever, maybe it's played on the Disney Channel or something. It really didn't get much airtime. Air and that was, you know, with a bunch of Disney folks. And so that's, I was, I was a senior when I got that job. Then I went on to the Care Bears movie. And then I got a job with, um, with a bunch of Disney folks who had left, wanted to do their own thing on the Brave Little Toaster. And we went to, ultimately, I was asked, do you want to go to Taiwan and animate? Ah, sure, sure. 
yeah, I'll do that. And we were there for probably six months. What was that experience like? Uh, it was like the first time I'd ever been out of the country, right? It, it was mind-bending, but ultimately good because it, it all taught me that, you know, that I take who I am with me no matter where I go, right? So I can, I've, I've been very open to traveling to different places uh, to ply my trade. Um, so... So yeah, it was it was scary at first. I mean, I remember coming out of the hotel the first day and there was this little shivering skinny dog in the in the alleyway we were walking down and I was like, "What have I gotten myself into? Is that dinner? What's going to happen here?" But no, we made a lot of really close friends and we were really tight and uh we figured, yeah, we figured it out. I was doing I mean, that was really my first big animation job and we were trying to do 30 feet of animation a week. Wow. Which is a lot. Yeah. A lot of full animation. Is that yeah. also where you met Glenn? No, I met Glenn on the Chipmunk Adventure. And he's the, I hear he's the one that encouraged you to reapply at Disney. That's right? true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was my directing animator. Uh, we worked on the Girls of Rock and Roll <laughs> with the Chipettes. And he said, uh, he asked me if I had applied. And I said, yeah, but they didn't want me. And he said, apply again. I'm going to go back. Just apply and... You know, I'm sure they'll take you this time. So, I'm, so I bet he had something to do with it. <laughs> I'm sure of it, as a matter of fact. So, <laughs> have you asked him at all? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I said, you know, were you responsible for this? And he said, I do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 stint, that first stint at Disney for you, that was like hugely successful. I mean, you were part of some, basically the re Renaissance. Yeah, Disney. I got lucky. The timing was really, really good. So the first thing I did when I went there, I worked on a couple of um, like Winnie the Pooh shorts that never got made. And um, they weren't ready to have animation start on Oliver and Company. That was the movie I got hired to be a part of, being Glenn's unit on Fagin. And, um, but they weren't ready yet. So it just happened that this little movie that might be in the future called uh, The Little Mermaid needed some character design work. So I came in and basically designed all the characters for Under the Sea and Kiss the Girl. Um, the orchestra did a bunch of work on Ursula. Um, I was the first one to, to take the assignment of drawing Ursula to look like uh, Divine. Do you know who Divine is? Yes. The, the drag queen. Um, and that was well, Howard. Nailed it. That, that, that was Howard Ashman's idea. And he said, I think we should try to do this. So I went off and did a whole bunch of sketches for that. Um, so, yeah, so it, so it all started really fortuitously. I, I never expected to be a Disney character designer. I was just going to was going to be one of the, you know, the 40 or 50 people who animate on a film. So that was that was great luck. So how do you go from, you know, working, doing character design on, you know, The Little Mermaid and some other of the titles that you worked on to actually directing your first feature? Oh, boy. Well, well. For, I knew I wanted to do it because as a puppeteer, I directed the shows that I, you know, that we produced. I directed some of them and I built them and I did everything sort of on them and performed in them. Um, so I knew I had that bug from the very, very beginning. And so I found a way to collect knowledge in many departments. So I went from character design on The Little Mermaid, animating on Oliver and Company, went back into character design on Beauty and the Beast, went on to Aladdin as a storyboard artist. So I kept asking to do these different things. I would always ask for what I wanted, that thing that I learned when I was young. If, you know, sometimes when you ask for what you want, you get it. So I kept asking. And then I finally asked after Aladdin, I said, I'd like to direct. And they said, sorry, there's no room at the inn. And because they had like the next five years planned out. So I left. I, I said, I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to go somewhere else and, and, you know, and see if I can find some opportunities. Because, I mean, you were essentially like in the middle of the biggest animation boom. Was it hard to make that decision? No, it wasn't hard for me. I really wanted that change. I realized that I couldn't be the kind of person who could just sit behind a desk every day, eight hours a day. I needed that sort of human interaction, that collaboration, the, the, you know, the building a creative team and being part of being in the room where it happens. Um, you know, those are all important things to me. So I decided to go. I went back to the, uh, the company that made, um, the brave little toaster, Hyperion and started to, uh, to develop a couple of movies that 
we're on the way to happening, but they're probably going to take a little bit longer. And then I got a call from a goofy movie. I'd done some freelance, again, for Jerry Reese, the director of The Brave Little Toaster. He was on it for a little bit. And they just asked. He, he decided he didn't want to do it. So I got lucky. I read a memo years later of all the directors that they were considering. Someone slipped me this memo. I, I wish I never had it, really, because it's not so nice towards some people. But on me, it says, we never should have let him leave. I think that's how, that's how it happened. With your first movie as director, what was that experience like? Oh, it was, you know, it was, it was just, I mean, it was a dream come true. It's what I always wanted, right? I never thought, and, it, and it's odd that a goofy movie is turned into the movie that, like, has the big cult following, because I never thought of it that way. I thought of it, okay, this is just a stepping stone towards something else. Um, and to have it be the movie that really all the eyes are on is, is kind of amazing. But, um, but I tried to bring something of myself to it, right? All those issues with my dad sort of just dumped into that movie. What would it be like to reconcile with your dad? What would it be like to have a relate, you know, have, have a relationship that has some depth to it with, uh, with your father? Cause I didn't have that. I was really sort of exploring that all with the movie. So you make a goofy movie. It's now, like you say, become this thing that you didn't know would have a life of its own. At, its at the time, it wasn't. At the time, it didn't make any money. It was kind of like a box office bomb. It got caught in the middle of some politics. <laughs> I, have, I have a career. I can tell you lots of stories about this, about these kind of things. Um, but yeah, Jeffrey Katzenberg had left the studio. He was the big, he was the man behind the movie. He wanted, to ha wanted it to happen because he was trying to um, make movies on a smaller budget. Can we do that? He wanted me to make Tarzan in Vancouver. Actually, I flew up to Vancouver and looked around at spaces for animation studios. And I was going to start the studio in Vancouver making Tarzan. And I said to Jeffrey, I said, how are we going to do this? We could barely make Goofy, you know, make a Goofy movie. And you want me to do a movie with a naked man? The heart, one of the hardest things to draw? So, but Jeffrey got fired. And then the movie kind of, you know, nobody wanted this thing to happen, especially feature animation. They didn't want like a cheaper movie out there to have to compete with that. So they kind of buried it. So it didn't make any money. But over time, it's become, you know, like we were talking about, this big cult classic. And you mentioned Tarzan. And to me, Tarzan's kind of like this marvel. He's, it's a movie that I find is sometimes overlooked as part of like the Disney canon of films. Right, and yeah. I don't know why. I Perhaps it's because it, it's a little bit more adult. It's a little bit, thematically, it feels a little darker than some of uh -huh, the movies of uh -huh. the time. How did that ever come to fruition? Like, it feels like such an oddity of a movie. Well, you know, you know, to begin with, Edgar Rice Burroughs, the author of Tarzan, always thought it should be an animated film. We found that out. He, he actually tried to get it made, made way back. Um, I think there's even some animation tests that maybe the Fleischer Studios did way back when. But Jeffrey handed me the book. Jeffrey Katzenberg handed me the book and said, I'd really like this to be your next film. And I immediately, like, attached to it. It's kind of like look, when I was just looking at the Jungle Book saying, I'm going to make that when I grow up. Well, Tarzan is like the, you know, the brother to, to Mowgli in many, many ways, right? So it seemed like the perfect movie for me. Jeffrey, Jeffrey was starting DreamWorks. He asked me to direct The Prince of Egypt. And I said, but Jeffrey, I, you know, I want to really make this movie that you put in my hands. Michael Eisner, in their little war that they were having at that time, came to me and said, we're going to make this a feature animation. Stay. So I had to make that decision. Um, actually, Jeffrey set me up with Steven Spielberg to convince me. And Steven said, you know what? If you're into Tarzan, go make Tarzan. Jeffrey was so mad at Steven for doing that. He wanted Steven to convince me. And Steven completely did the opposite. So, so yeah. So it ended up over at uh, Feature Animation and in the middle of the whole Disney DreamWorks wars. But, you know, it's, 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 you are right. It is darker than most of the other movies. Characters don't sing the songs, right? There's there's very there's a lot of sort of inner turmoil, character turmoil happening. Also, the studio doesn't push it because there are contractual agreements with the Edgar Rice Burroughs estate 
that doesn't allow Tarzan and the characters that 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 Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote doesn't allow them to appear with the other Disney characters because they are not Disney characters. They are Edgar Rice Burroughs characters that we licensed. So they're not allowed to be in the parades at Disneyland. They're not allowed to, you know, they're only, they, they, they used to be at Disneyland, something called Tarzan's Treehouse, which just closed down, but they could be in their own little area separate from everybody else. They can't walk in the park. They can't be in any any illustrations with the other characters. So it's kind of relegated to, you know, to not being seen, which means that, you know, folks don't have as much sort of inter- interaction with those characters as you do with maybe Stitch, right? Because he's a Disney character. So, so you make Tarzan, which does that end up being your last animated film? It is, yeah, the last one to get produced. Can you tell me about how you became involved with 102 Domnations? So when, uh, so Glenn Close is the voice of Kala, mm-hmm. the mother ape in Tarzan, and she said to me, you direct more like a live-action director than an animation director. I had to figure out what that meant, you know, over time. But um, but I never ask an actor to say it three times and say it, say one time fast and one time slower. I don't do that. I try to always put them in the scene. Maybe that was why. So she goes off to do 102 Dalmatians. They lose their director. Peter Schneider, who was the head of Disney animation, now becomes the head of Disney live action. He knew I wanted to be a live action director because again, I said, I'm going to go off and try to direct live action. And um, it all just came together. So Glenn, they lost their director, and she said, "What about Kevin?" She may have regretted that, <laughs> but but so I so yes, yeah, so I got the chance. It was already like we were three months away from production. The, yeah, yeah, they were in that kind of a wow. you know the straits with it. They were already designing sets. They were already taken off on so many things. So I sort of stepped in and tried to wrangle it together. It's not you know it's not one of my the the one of my favorite movies that I've ever made, I think one because I there's not a lot of me in it, right? There's not a lot of my and Tarzan also is about fathers and sons, right? It's got that big theme, and this movie feels a little bit like a hodgepodge to me. But I did get the opportunity to direct a live action movie, a big live action movie. I learned a ton, a ton that I could bring with me to the next movies which was good, you know, good learning experience. But I, when that movie came out, it was my first bomb. And I was like, wow, I was really depressed. That Thanksgiving was not good. My wife, I'm married to Brenda Chapman, um, who's also a director, and she had to slap me about and say, get over yourself, boy. This is, you know, if you want to do this, th- these are some of the things that happen in life. And uh, so she had to smack me around a little bit, break me out of my depression. But I mean, the fact that you you jumped into that, knowing that you that you were basically like jumping into the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. That's that takes guy. And I had never done it before. I never had done a short film. I I had directed some theater. So while I was on Aladdin, I directed a community theater version of Into the Woods because I wanted to get more experience directing actors, um, you know, in a more immediate setting. So I did that just because I wanted to gain knowledge, hoping that. Someday this would happen. Um, so I had I had a little bit of that. What, what's so interesting to me in the, in the transition is that all the pieces of designing movie, live action movie, are exactly the same. Exactly the same. The only really big difference is you're all heading towards one moment in time where you say action and the piece is recorded. Whereas that moment in time in animation is spread out over years. And that's what I had to get used to, how to prep for that moment in time. Other than that moment in time, what are the other major like differences between directing animation and directing live action? The moment in time is the biggest thing for me and prepping for that moment in time. I'd say that the navigating of actors is very different because they are now in their element, right? So they are most actors are are more much more used to making a movie in that fashion. In animation, they feel like they're giving themselves over to you. Because most of the time they're alone, the other actors aren't there, you as a director are helping them understand the moment, how the other actors handled the scene. Um, a lot of, I, as a director, I would go into the booth with them and I would act the other side of the scene for them because I knew what the other actor had done. So I could bring that to the table. 
Um, I have a tiny bit of acting experience. In fact, I, I do some voices in uh, some of my films. I, I put my, well, you do a lot of scratch dialogue, right? So I would do a lot of the scratch dialogue in, in the film. So I ended up in a couple just because people laugh during test screenings. But uh, so, so I would say that's, that's a big thing is, is the way in which you interact with actors is much different because it's, you know, again, you're in that moment trying to make a scene work. And sometimes your scene doesn't work, right? So you have to figure it out with them in the moment, rewriting the scene sometimes, um, you know, blocking the scene in the moment. Um, those are all things. But I, but I had blocked animation, animated scenes. I had done some theater, so I had some knowledge of that. Um, but I would, I would say everything that circles that, that moment in time, right? So in that moment, you're figuring out where the camera's going to be, where the you know what the what first of all what the blocking is how the actors are going to handle the scene helping the actors through that scene if finding that scene all happens in the moment in an animation you know you do storyboards if the scene doesn't work you do it again the scene doesn't work you do it again sometimes you throw out the entire movie and do it again but that doesn't happen in live action so when Enchanted came around, yeah. you came on board right at the beginning of that. Right? It had been in development at Disney for about seven years. They were trying to figure out a script. So they had been going back and forth and all around on it. I read a draft. I helped finish a movie called The Wild, which was done at Core in, uh, in Toronto. It was being made by the live action division at Disney for some odd reason, and they needed some help. So I came in, and they told me, if you help us out, we'll, we'll give you a film to, to develop. And so behind the scenes, the executive was saying, oh, I think Enchanted would be perfect for Kevin. So I, I read a script that was what I was, we were probably seven years in. They were seven years in. And then um, I read it, came in with my ideas. Um, they were very nervous. Because they wanted to do something that was, more, I would say, maybe more cynical, right? That made fun of Disney movies, as opposed to, I came in and said, no, 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 this needs to be a love letter to Disney movies. Let's do something totally different than Shrek. Shrek had already come out, and I thought, they've already done that. So let's do something different. They were nervous about that, about not taking a high comedy approach. And, um, but I... But I came in, did a rewrite, a bunch of rewrites with the, the the writer who was like the original writer who wrote the spec. And then they went through a bunch of other writers and then he came back. So I worked with him and we filled a whole, I did kind of the animation. It's one of the things I learned is that I needed to hold on to the way I make movies. I don't have to become, you know, Steven Spielberg in order to do a live action movie. I can still be Kevin Lima, take all of my experience. So I filled a whole like floor in, in a production building with artwork so that you could go on the entire. Yeah, I could take you through the entire floor and tell you the whole story visually. Um, and I storyboarded the whole movie. I didn't tell the executives I was storyboarding the whole movie because I didn't want them to see it because if they saw it, they might not green light the movie because they don't necessarily, I didn't feel they understood how to look at storyboards. You know, it's really a skill. It takes a long time to, to get used to that art form. So I, um, so I did that and there was a lot, there were a lot of battles at the studio about whether or not to make the movie or not. The marketing department didn't want to make the movie. Um, they didn't think it would play to boys tried to stop it and luckily dick cook who is the head of um the live action division at the time um he believed in the movie and he pushed it forward into production was there always that live action animation component yeah that that was always a part of it in the earlier drafts it was just at the very beginning and there were there were it's only a song at the very beginning there were no songs throughout the movie so when I came in, I brought, I fed the animation through the movie a little bit more and brought the idea that, well, Giselle can sing. She's an animated character. She would just break into song in our world. It wouldn't seem, wouldn't seem like abnormal for her. It's just the way she expresses herself. So we, we worked that out. And that, I mean, I think that's one of the most po popular and maybe, uh, 
you know, maybe the most successful piece of the movie is that she enchants the real world, right, with song. One of the things that I think Disney lucked out on, and they maybe don't even realize it, is they managed to get a director that had experience in both live action and animation, because there aren't a lot of you. No, there aren't. And in fact, the movie had a couple of directors before me on it, and it didn't come together. I was I was lucky, too. Right? To find that kind of a movie that I understood on some real basic level. I was the one who brought a lot of the, like, the the references to the Disney animated films to it. You know, if you really look at that movie, there's shot-for-shot comparisons to some of the Disney classics. Especially Snow White, Cinderella, and Sleeping Beauty. So, um, I don't think another director could have done that as easily as I could have. You know, I said, oh yeah, this is just like that shot in Sleeping, that moment in Sleeping Beauty where, and then I could play that out. Is casting something you were involved with, with as well? Absolutely, from the very beginning. On, on all the films, actually, animated as well. Yeah, yeah. Directors sort of intimately involved. Yeah, that the studio didn't want Amy Adams to begin with. They didn't want her because she wasn't a big enough star then. I think she had just shot Junebug, but it hadn't been released. And um, they didn't want her. They wanted, like, a big, like... Reese Witherspoon or Rachel McAdams. And I was like, no, 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 this is our chance to do like Mary Poppins, right? Where you didn't really know who Julie Andrews was. She'd done some stage work. And I thought, let's let the character live first and foremost. Um, Instead of thinking, oh, look, Reese Witherspoon, you say, oh, look, that's Giselle. Yeah, so Amy came in and auditioned. And I had a temperature of like 103, 2 that day. And I forgot I was sick for... The half hour I was with her, and I knew right away, that's got to be Giselle. This is Giselle. And luckily, again, Dick Cook, I showed the tapes to Dick Cook, and Dick Cook said, oh, yeah, she's perfect for it. We should we should go with her. And then I had to make a trade. I had to choose someone for Robert, who was well-known. <laughs> that, that was what they asked me to do. We'll give you Giselle if you give us Robert. You know, we've talked a little bit about how your most personal movies are the ones that have a little bit of your, you know, relationships in them. Mm-hmm. But this one doesn't feel like it, but maybe it does. I don't I don't know. This one has the the wide-eyed Disney wonder, right? That's what it has. That's the piece of me that this movie has is my love of the source material, right? And from the time I was a little tiny kid, it's what I wanted to do work at Disney. So I knew that pretty intimately and I knew that tone. I knew how to thread that needle where I don't think, maybe this is egotistical of me, but I don't think another director would have made the same movie. It's a very unique vision, and it just, like you say, it's like a perfect love story to to Disney. There's a, a challenge that comes with making any film. For with Enchanted, what was the the biggest challenge of making that particular project? Other than uh, other than the, the the studio politics, which is always I find diff- much more difficult on a on a live action movie than an animated movie. You you kind of live a little bit in a bubble in uh, in animation. They especially at Disney, you are so incredibly protected. Um, so getting out into the world and having to fight all those battles was hard, but I find that on every movie. I think probably the artistic challenge was creating characters across two mediums, right? Like how do I, how do I make sure that the Giselle that's in animation is the same Giselle that's in live action? And so I had to rally every, you know, the, the costume designers, working with the actors, doing live action reference for the animators. I was so lucky to, to get James Baxter. You know, he had a studio then and we were, we were so incredibly lucky that all that came together at that time. Cause the, I think the animation is like really high quality. Um, and we weren't doing it at Disney. We were doing it outside of Disney. So getting all those people in line working together to create a sense of character was was probably the most, that wasn't difficult, but it took a lot of concentration to make sure that happened. By the time you came on board, how long was it before we actually got the finished picture? Um, probably about two years, two, maybe two and a half years. Once you get the green light, it, 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 it happens like immediately because they're spending a lot of money. Every day, a whole lot of money's going out, and they don't want to. They don't want to spend that kind of money for very long. And then, what happened is something that's happened to me in the past. There was a big studio changeover, and the guys in marketing who didn't want uh, to make the movie became the heads of the live action division. 
<laughs> you have bad luck. Luckily, the movie, like, just, like, it had a life of its own, and it wasn't going to allow anybody to stand in its way. You know, I think it made, like, $340 million. And so they didn't support it all that well. Um, because, you know, when, when when you try to shut down a movie, the last thing you want is for that movie to do well because it shows that you don't know what you're talking about, right? So um, so the movie did really, really well. And then there was a big, you know, st- st- political stumbling for me at the studio with those new, that new political dynamic because that guy did not want me at the studio and the head of the studio wanted me to be there and get a production deal. I was supposed to do the, the Muppet movie, the the one that came out most recently. And because of political dealings behind the scenes that I didn't even know were happening, it kind of pushed me aside. How do you go about, like on a practical level, when you sit down to, to work on something, whether you're, you know, working on a new film or, you know, just doodling around, what does that process look like for you? There are always ideas tumbling through my head. And the hardest piece of it is deciding what to do, where to go next and what to take on. I have, have, like most artists, I have a fear, a fair amount of fear um, of committing to something. Um, But when I do, it sort of then lives with me all day, every day. And I typically will take the steps of like... I have to sit myself down, write just all the all the thoughts that are in my head. I just write them out. Then I typically, if if, if I'm going to write it, which I've been doing a lot more writing recently, um, I card the whole thing out by myself, sit and write on little post-it notes and hang them all up in order where the act breaks take place, look at the structure, see if I can get a handle on it that way. Then I do another pass in which I go through like, okay, all the details. I want to know what everything is before I sit down and write because I find writing to be the most torturous of the crafts, uh, you know, by yourself. And there's a huge amount of doubt. And am I choosing the right, you know, the, the right events to tell the story? Are the characters coming? All those things just sort of torment me. So, um, so I try to do as much prep work as possible. I think that also comes from maybe being an animator where I try to do all the prep work, all the thumbnails, think through all the different ways you could do the scene, choosing a way. And then when you actually sit down to animate, you've already got a game plan in your head. Let's say you work on it for, you know, three, four, five months and it's not kind of going anywhere or not progressing like you want it to. Do, I, do you at some point say, okay, this isn't working. I just have to leave this and move on to something else yeah i've put things aside i say okay this isn't this isn't really coming together quickly right now i tend you know i told you earlier i tend to take the easiest path the path of least resistance um so if it's a struggle i i tend to give up give up pretty easily and you know it still sits around like i'm terribly disappointed in myself just recently because i've been wanting to do a, um, you know, a a feature animated live action movie based on Little Nemo and Slumberland, the old comics by Winsor McKay. And I just saw that there's a movie coming out on Netflix that's based on, yeah, Jason Momoa, I think is in it. And I was like, man, I just didn't get on top of that one. Right. And I, and I figured out things. And in fact, when I was making my Disney deal after Enchanted, that was one of the movies I pitched to them wanting to make. So I'm a little disappointed that that I'm not going to get to do that one. But th- there are others that I've yeah that I've got going on. Is it is it hard to kind of like let those things that didn't happen or those projects that you know you've put time and effort into just having to let them go? Yeah, I never let them go. Um, there are a couple like I I worked two and a half years on a DreamWorks animated film. Uh, called The Monkeys of Mumbai, which is a big Bollywood musical. Steven Schwartz and A.R. Rahman wrote the music, and we had we had spent $30 million on this movie. And because Jeffrey was selling his company to Universal at the time, he gathered up, I don't know, $380 million worth of projects so that he could lower the debt ceiling for the sale. So it had nothing to do with me. It all had to do with the politics of... I mean, he he canned a movie that they had spent $140 million on. So it was about math. And um, those are the ones that are the hardest to let go of. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that one sticks with me 
a lot. I think about that movie a lot because it really would have been visually stunning. I mean, the artwork was just unbelievably beautiful. And do you take any of those, maybe not the story ideas, but some of those concepts, do they ever carry through to other work that you're doing? I tend to start at ground zero every single time. But yeah, the rumblings of, um, you know, of, of, of making a Bollywood musical, animated Bollywood musical have been on my mind. I don't know. I mean, I guess I think about them, but I haven't yet put them into other movies. I haven't like, they haven't grown into other projects yet. And when you said that you start at ground zero every time, to me, that seems really scary. It just naturally goes there, right? It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm starting at ground zero because it's a new set of characters, right? And those characters have to dig, dictate what the plot is. Ultimately, the path is dictated by character. I can try to force them to do what I want them to do, but that doesn't usually work. They usually go where they want to go. So, yes, yeah, so it always feels like zero. I mean, there are certain structural ideas that always come in. Like, I try to make everything into a musical. I can't help it. It drives Brenda crazy because she doesn't really like musicals that much. So she and I have a company that we, that we started at Fox um, before the, the pandemic. And um, I want to turn every single movie that we develop into a musical. But it naturally comes into, you know, I, I, I just love it when a character breaks into song and expresses themselves musically. So that, I always do come back to those kinds of things that I want to do. Where do you find inspiration? Because I mean, we were just talking, you know, there was a movie that you wanted to make that's about, you know, old cartoons. But where do your other ideas come from? Do you just see something and all of a sudden you you get an idea or they come from they come from all different places i don't consciously look for them i'm not like saying okay i gotta think of an idea what is the idea no they come from all different kinds of places like oh i'd love to make a movie like that i'd love to make a movie in that genre i've been drawing this weird character that just keeps showing up in all of my doodles who is that is there something to be done there i meet this person and i go i'd love to make a movie with them you know, do you have any ideas? Can we can we sit down and talk about the things we love? Um, so they come from all different places. And I'm always looking. I mean, I'm really bad as I tend to. I don't read for enjoyment. I read looking for a new idea. So I'll pick up a book that's like about, oh, I wonder if this would make a good movie. Um, or if it doesn't start that way, it finishes that way. Oh, this would make a great movie. I've got to try to figure out how to get the rights to this. Um, so it's just always, it goes all the way back to like to being a little kid playing with your plastic animals, you know, in the dirt, right? In your backyard. So you're always just putting together some sort of scenario and story. You talk a little bit about doodling. Is that something that you do unconsciously or do you consciously set time aside to keep that second nature? No, I've, I've been lax at kind of keeping up on my drawing skills. They've really gone downhill but i do always doodle i usually doodle during meetings i think it has something to do with right brain left brain right brain thing i think better when i'm doodling and not just trying to take in sort of the verbal when i'm on the phone i doodle all the time i tend to also like take notes constantly so i always have a little notebook where if i'm in a, a zoom call i'm taking notes about the things that are being said or if i'm on a, a pitch i'll draw the other people that I'm pitching to, the executives, because I can't remember their names and put it together with the face. But if I look at the, oh, those were those people in that meeting. So yeah, I, I very rarely, although I have been thinking about picking it up again, because I just wrote a, a spec script about my, my childhood. And I thought, well, if I can't sell it, maybe I'll do it as a graphic novel. Maybe that's something I could do. All right. I have that ability. It may be a little rusty, but it might be maybe even more interesting that it's rusty, right? It might come out a little differently. Maybe it won't lean as far towards uh, Disney, which is my natural, you know, that's where I go naturally to all those formulas. So I've been thinking about that, doing that. You know, you mentioned Brenda. You have yeah. two creatives in the same house. Yeah. You sometimes work together, but you sometimes don't. We didn't work together till we were in our 50s. Okay, so, uh, you know, I was going to ask about this because your careers have, you know, naturally intersected over the course of your life together as partners. Yeah. But... I was going to ask about this, you know, working together creatively. We avoided it, 
for a long time because we didn't want it to get in the way of our relationship, even starting at school, right? She was a freshman. I was a senior, although we're the same age. Um, she started later and, um, we each had our classes, our friends. So we tended to come together and then go off. We go to a party and go off with our friends. So we would support each other, but we didn't want, honestly, what happened to a lot of CalArts couples is that the guy would start to take over the girl's film. And she didn't want that. And I didn't want that. I wanted her to be her own person. And so, so we very consciously decided that we weren't going to do that. And that just naturally fed into our careers. We both ended up at Disney at the same time. You know, we had different, we were in different roles, but we ended up on the same movies a bunch. And she would ask me sometimes, oh, I have to do Kiss the Girl. Can you, we need some like cranes and frogs and all this stuff. Could you draw, could you draw those for me? And I would just send her, you know, give her stuff. And that happened pretty organically because we were married. And we both sort of moved up the ladder. We both became directors. We both, we, we didn't have a child until, you know, we had both had our, you know, got our feet really strongly in place. And we did that consciously. So we, we were married 10 years before we had a child. Um, so not until we were in our 50s, sort of like had gone through the experience of, you know, our professional lives that we say, maybe we could do this. We we're also afraid, like, you know, what if we try to do this and it like wrecks our marriage, you know? So we didn't want to do that either. And, but in our fifties, we felt confident enough to be able to stand up for our own selves and feel secure enough in our relationship to, to do it together. And we wrote, we wrote a script that got bought by Fox, but unfortunately Fox got bought by Disney and, uh, it got sort of shelved. Um, so, so we've been, much, we've been, it's been much easier and we realized, oh, we, we can do this. You know, we can really do this. And maybe, maybe the things we do are better for it, right? Because there's two points of view. Is the process of creating together the same as when you create independently? It's the same in that we each create collaboratively, right? So in animation, it's so collaborative that I created with a team of people, right? So making Goofy movie, I had a head of story that was great and he and I would rewrite the scenes and, you know, do all of that together. So it's, and she would do the same thing and the Lion King, she was head of story and she would, uh, you know, work with all the artists and the directors in that way. So when we came together, it was as if we were collaborating with the way we collaborated both organically on the movies. So it was really no different for us. We tended to like split up the writing that's, we wouldn't sit in the room together and write a scene. We'd outline the whole thing. We'd together, we'd talk about it till, you know, we were blue in the face. And then we would go off, okay, you go write this, I'll go write that. I tend to be more comedic than she is. She's very dramatic, a dramatic writer. Um, although we both, you know, want to find, you know, the emotional journey for the character. And so that's all the same. Is there like one thing that you've been working on forever that is like the, the one that you want to do? There are a lot. I, th I think the thing most recently that I, you know, I told you about this spec script, this autobiographical spec script, and it probably has the, of course, has the deepest hold on me because it's what happened to me, right? It's the story of a kid who uses creativity to gain control in a world that feels out of control. It deals directly with who I am and what I went through and what I believe, you know, are survival techniques for a lot of for a lot of kids out there who are, who are struggling to hold on to life. And with Portuguese so. heritage, I'm sure there's probably good food. <laughs> Lots. You know what? I do describe food because my grandmother is always cooking. My mother is always cooking. Um, and uh, she's like my Obi-Wan Kenobi in the movie, right? And she dies halfway through the movie and leaves leaves her, her imprint. I'm curious if you were to do anything over again. Mm. Would you do anything differently? Mm -hmm. I, would, I would be more involved in the minutiae of of my of the politics of my career i wouldn't allow other people to control certain moments i would have stepped in and not not necessarily not not necessarily taken someone's word 
for what was going on. I would have made sure that I spoke to the person at the top as opposed to letting another level of person get in the middle of things. I would have been more directly in control of the path. But I, but I trusted a lot of people, and I got, I got brought down. Is it hard to step back from that? I'd never overcome it. I've been able to get a, you know, I, it's been very, very hard since, I mean, I haven't had a movie produced since Enchanted, and that was 2007. I keep trying. I have the grit and the perseverance to keep trying, and I've gotten, like, so close so many times, but it just hasn't happened. So, how, how do you stay motivated through that? I mean, it's a hard industry. I'm a creator, right? So as long as I'm making something, there's a part of me that feels fulfilled. You know, my bank account isn't always happy with me for that. And luckily, I'm married, you know, to Brenda Chapman, a very successful director as well. So there's some give and take. And don't get me wrong. I have made money, right? It hasn't been that I haven't made money. When 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 Jeffrey closed down Monkeys in Mumbai, I was, I was pay or play. So I got paid for the whole thing, right? So, so I have made, I do have the financial ability to continue. What, what's hard is that I haven't been able to get across the finish line. You know, I think about retiring every once in a while and I think, what am I going to do? I'm just going to do the same thing, right? I'm going to find ways to tell stories. What am I going to do? Like make puppets in my garage and like perform for the neighborhood. I'm going to keep doing something. So, so I'm, I don't think I'll ever stop. What would you say to someone that's interested in getting into the industry? What would be like your one piece of advice? I would say do, do things that no one's going to give you something. You have to prove to them that you, that you can do it. Ask for what you want. Always ask for what you want, but be prepared to do the job when you get it. Don't waste a yes. Right? So you never know who you're going to be talking to. And, you know, you're talking about what you want, what your dreams are, the project that you have, that someone's going to, someone someday is going to spark to that and give you a yes. But you, you got to be ready to do it. Right. And that's why I went and did things like directed a, a, a stage show. Right. Cause I knew if someone said yes to me, I better be able to, to step up. Otherwise it's over. Right. You'll never get another yes again. If you, if you stumble badly. And that was our conversation with Kevin Lima. You can see all of Kevin's films now streaming on Disney+, and you can find out more about his upcoming projects on his website, twasentertainment.com. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edlin. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.